0: Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Um, like like Larry said, my name is Dan. Uh, I am the pastor of Community Care around here, and uh, this is a terrific opportunity for me to be able to take a, a, a part of this transformation service uh, series that we're doing. But um, the the topic I'm looking at is a transformed view of God. Uba. That's a big topic to take, and um, my my hope is that we'll be able to come up with some kind of a a working definition uh, that may kind of stretch us a bit. We've got to be stretched when we're talking about God. Um, And and then I believe very strongly, as I've been working on this this, uh, sermon, that this view that we have of God influences the way we view life. Um, So I think it's pretty important that we have a good view of God if we're going to be stepping into life uh, and and meeting the challenges that we'll face day by day by day. Um, Hey, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles. I'm going to just put up a slide here. This is Ephesians 3, and it's uh, beginning at verse 14. This is from the NIV, the New International Version. And I'm going to ask us all just to kind of look at the screen and read this together. So let's just read it out loud together. Here we go. And in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. That is a big passage. So I think it's good for us to start at the feet of a big God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Ah, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that you are here. And Lord, I I ask you to to speak to us, to, to speak through me, to... Challenge all of us. Mm. Challenge all of us. We want to see you. We want to see you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, as I think about this topic, it's probably important that I share a little bit with you about how I even met Jesus. Uh, How I came... To give my life to God, if I can use that terminology, um, I see a little seven-year-old kid, blonde hair. I, I used to have lots of blonde. I used to have lots of hair, um, <laughs> blonde hair. But uh, it was in the summertime, and I was at camp, and I was at a children's camp. It was called Montrose Bible Conference Children's Camp. So you kind of get the gist of what this camp was about. Um, And I remember this one evening, Wednesday night, the leader was uh, teaching about the story of Daniel. We learned a song, Daniel was a man of prayer. Daily prayed he three times, till one day they had him cast in a den of lions. Even then, in the den, fears could not alarm him. God just shut the lion's mouths, so they would not harm him. That's for free. Uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, I remember we sang that song. I don't remember anything else about the night, but I do remember that there was an invitation given. And for some of you who may be here at church for the first time or, or kind of new to this language, an invitation is where we kind of open it up and say, hey, if you'd like to give your life to Jesus or if you'd like to accept Jesus into your heart. And that's what was given that night. And so here I was, seven-year-old kid. I thought, well, wow, lots of kids are going to go forward. I stood up and I stared down. And as I'm about a quarter of the way down the aisleway, I realized nobody else is going down. (laughs) And so I started looking for an empty chair, but all the kids were filling the empty chairs because they were sitting. Um, So I ended up going all the way down. And our leader was a lady. uh, She was known as Mrs. J, and she was in charge of the whole children's camp. Uh, I had it in with her because she was my aunt. And uh, we always called her Meal. I have no idea why she had that name. Um, she was a large woman, you know, she was sitting on a stool, she'd given this whole Bible story using flannel graph, I must admit. (laughs) But I can still remember Meal, Aunt Meal, taking me through the steps and and I accepted Jesus as my Savior. And um, and I have to admit, uh, I didn't feel all that different. Two days later, Friday, in children's camp, there was a radio station in the same town and they came and they put on a radio program in which we all went through what happened in camp. And guess who had to share his testimony? As a seven-year-old, it went across the Blue Ridge Endless Mountains. Um, What an experience that was. 60 years later, 60 years later, I look back And I realized, whoa, I didn't have a clue of what I was in for. And I also have to tell you, as a 67-year-old, I'm not sure that I have a clue of what I'm in for. But God has been walking with me and, and showing me step by step. And I've got tons of ways to go. So as I try to unpack a definition of who God is, I hope you realize it's in wet cement and it's always formulating. Uh, and and I want to be I want to watch out. Um, you know, there's certain characters in the Bible. There's a there's a name that I remember, Uzzah. Uzzah. I don't know if that rings any bell, um, but Uzzah um, had a father named Abinadab. He was a farmer, and it just so happened that the Ark of the Covenant ended up on his farm, and uh, King David said, "We want to move it to Jerusalem." where all the people are. So Uzzah and his brother and a whole host of people began to move the Ark of the Covenant and there was a point where all of a sudden the oxen began to stumble and in stumbling you can just imagine the cart began to rock and in rocking here's the Ark of the Covenant that's rocking on this cart and Uzzah just put his hand out to steady it and he was zapped. So I don't want to get zapped in front of you today. So I think the best thing is as we wrestle with a definition of who God is, it's to see who God says he is from his word, not from my idea. And so that's why we're looking at this passage today in Ephesians chapter 3. And it's a big passage. In fact, if you look at it, you know, in our English translation, we've got periods and, and we've got breakings and everything in sentences. But if you look at it in the original language, it's one long run on sentence. It just keeps on going and going and going and going. Um, you know, he, he wouldn't have made it through my high school English class, writing like this. I like guess inspired scripture, kind of slides through at times. But there's something that happens in this passage that helps us break it up. And, and that's a little phrase that means, so that, or in order that. And I've just inserted it here uh, in verse 16, verse 18, verse 19, in order that. So we're going to look at those three phrases to build this definition of God. But first, I've got to start with, I call them the bookends of this prayer. Or you could call it a sandwich. These are the two slices of bread on either side, and the prayer is stuck in the middle. Um, the, the, The first bookend is, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So here's Paul. He's going to prayer. He's praying to the Father. To whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Not just on earth, in heaven. And, and I kind of wrestle with, if some of you may have a translation that says every kindred in heaven and on earth. Some of you may have a translation that says every father in heaven and on earth. Because that word can, you, can have all those different meanings. And it really seemed to say to me what's going on here is I'm praying to the Father. I'm praying to Father God. And every relationship here on earth is defined by who he is. Every relationship up in the heavenlies is defined by who he is. Um, Every aspect of what a father is supposed to be is defined by our heavenly father. Every aspect of what a mother is supposed to be is defined by our heavenly father. Every aspect of what a brother or a sister or a friend, every relationship we know is defined by our Father in heaven. And there's one thing I go away with with that. Stop defining God by my experience with my own father. Because I always kind of fall short. Start looking at God the Father and realize it's that fatherhood that I should use to define my earthly father. It's that fatherhood, that relationship that I I should use to define any relationship that I have here on earth. It's going to be in the heavenlies as well. That is a big person that we're praying to. Um, I said bookends, so i got to go to the end of the prayer as well. And the end is verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Think about that. You know, I like to think I've got a pretty good imagination. But this is saying, I can't even begin to imagine God. Um, that's, that, that's big. That's big. Uh, so we had a staff retreat this past weekend up in Evergreen. We had a great time. And the last day, Aaron, Aaron Arkland, I'm not sure where Aaron is. But anyway, Aaron led us in a uh, devotional. And he challenged us. He said, I want each of you to kind of think, what are those goals that you have for your departments? What are those visions you've got for your departments? So we're all getting them. We're jotting them down on paper. And then he says, now, I want you to pray. And I want you to multiply that goal by 10,000. I could only do 1,000. And that was even out of the range. But uh, I thought, wow, that's a little bit big for me to even grasp. But this is saying even more, even more than I can multiply by 10,000. Um, many of you know I, I have a habit of waking up in the middle of the night. And I wake up, and then my mind starts going, and then I'm awake. And I found what I need to do is I need to go downstairs. I, well, first, grab a bathrobe, get my slippers on, go downstairs, walk out onto the deck, and look up. I need to get my star fixed. By that, I mean just to see the awesome immensity of the universe around me. And I know I only see a very small, small, small part of it. But it stretches my imagination. And there's something about realizing that God knows every star, every planet, every galaxy. He's got them all named. He holds them in the palm of his hand, and, and he's right there with me in bed. I found that helps me fall back to sleep. God is immense. So I want to start our definition um, with these two bookends. And, you know, at first I was thinking, oh, God is awesome. But then I thought, well, that's got too many loaded baggage to it. You know, God is awesome. So what I want to say is God is awe-inspiring. Our God Is awe inspiring and he draws us, it's that awe that draws us into worshiping him. Uh, What a wonderful time it was to sing today. I loved hearing you sing those songs, even that one that Aaron taught us. You were singing it by the second refrain or something like that, and you didn't even know it. What a wonderful thing because God is awe inspiring. Mm. So it brings me to that, um, that first little phrase that I've got here in verse 16, in order that. So he's praying to this father who is, who is awe-inspiring, in order that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That, that first little part of our definition, God is awe-inspiring, does blow my mind. I mean, it's hard to think about, but, but this concept is hard to rationalize. Because as I look at that, it's talking, he's, he's praying to the Father. And out of the glorious riches that the Father has, he's saying, May his Spirit strengthen you with power so that Christ may dwell within you. The Father's glorious riches, the Spirit's power, the Son's presence. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three in one. We call it the Trinity or the Tri-Unity, and it's tough for us to get our arms around this thing. Um, let me go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right there, you can see. One time he's saying, Let's make him in our image. Next time he's saying, so I'm gonna make him in my image, in, in his image, singular. You, you've got that thing, and there's another kind of juxtaposition that doesn't necessarily jump out at us in the English. Then God said. That word for God is plural. And that word said is singular. He said, God's, he said. That doesn't now talk about flunking an English class. That just doesn't make sense to us. Um, If you go to Genesis chapter 2, there's a word that's used throughout Genesis chapter 2. Lord God. Lord God. Lord is singular. God is plural. And it puts them both together. Oh my goodness. And I sit there and I try to wrestle with this whole thing of this triunity of this God that we follow. And I have to admit... Over the 60 years since starting this journey with God, that's been one of those little sticky wickets where I've always wrestled with them on. But, but a, probably about 25 years ago, I came to this conclusion that said, hey, you know, that's a pretty good thing that it's a proof to me that Christianity is true. Because if there was anybody trying to come up with a religion and just write it, they would never think of the trinity they would stay as far away from something as irrational as that. Three people in one. This is God revealing himself to us. Three people in one. And so I take that definition, God is awe-inspiring. God is an awe-inspiring community of one. And that may not strike us, But but one of the things that comes out to me in that definition, I go back to John chapter 17, where Jesus, the son, is praying. He's at the end of his ministry. He's getting ready. He knows the next day he's going to be crucified. He knows the resurrection is going to be coming. He knows he's going to be leaving his disciples. And he has this amazing prayer in John 17. And he Praise this toward the end of this prayer. My prayer is not for them only. In other words, my prayer is not just about these 12 disciples you've given me. I pray also for all those who will believe in me through their message. Guess what? That's us. So Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was praying for us. And he says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world might believe that you sent me. There's an inness. That's the only way I can say it. Some kind of an inness of this community. Jesus is in the Father. The Father is in Jesus. The Spirit is in the Father. The Father is in the Spirit. The whole process of the Trinity, they're in each other. They're one. I, I can't paint it for you. You know, I know we come up with things like take an egg. You got the shell, you got the yellow, and you got the white there is a trinity. No, there's not the trinity (laughs) because they're one. It, it stretches, it boggles our imagination. And it takes me back to this prayer that says, I can't even imagine it. This God that we worship, but he's a community. And guess what? Even in this prayer that we have, he says, we're looking at the Father, we're looking at the Spirit, we're looking at the Son, so that Christ, the Son, may dwell in us, in our hearts. There's that inness, that oneness. Um, I'm thankful that I'm not the only one that has to wrestle with this, because, good grief, we'd never come up with any kind of answers. But there's a, there's a term, and I just share it with you, eh, kind of impress you, but, you know, if someone ever says this to you, you can kind of say, oh, I already heard this. Um, perichoresis perichoresis. It's a Greek word, perichoresis. And it's what people have used to describe this Trinity and how they interact together, how they indwell each other, how they work together. Perichoresis. In fact, they've said the best way that we can describe this Trinity is using the word dance. They dance together. There's a oneness in their movements. They dance. And and that's coming from a Baptist preacher's kid <laughs> who, who was never allowed to dance um, you, you know I, okay I share this with the first service and let's see if I've got Yeah, somebody came up and gave me a note but I shared how even as a third grader I remember I do remember this very distinctly going in with my little note to the phys ed teacher and handing it to him and the note said please excuse Dan from the phys ed class today as you're teaching square dancing and I remember sitting in the bleachers watching all my classmates learn how to square dance. I think I was, I think I was injured for life. Um, I have two left feet still to this day. And I know, I'm looking at Teresa down here who's in staff, and she wants to teach me to dance so much. I, I need to learn. But someone came up afterwards and handed me a note. Dan, I believe God wants you to join the square dance. <laughs> Perichoresis, the Trinity, God the three-in-one, a community, and they come and they invite us into their community. They want us to be part of them. Oh, that, that's big, that's big. Let's go to the next phrase. The next phrase, in order that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. Again, a huge thought. How wide, how long, how high, how deep is this love that Christ brings in into us because he's dwelling inside of us. And this prayer is that we would come to understand what that is. Um, you know, I couldn't come up with any good explanations of it until I was reading this book called uh, Experiencing the Trinity by Daryl Johnson. And he kind of put it this way, and I think, it, I think it hits something right on the head. Uh, his love is wide enough. His love is wide enough to embrace all 7.5 billion people on our planet. Every tribe, nation, people, tongue. Every country. um, It doesn't regard what those people have done. He loves them. And he so much wants them to embrace his love. But he's embracing them. Do you ever think there's some people that miss out? that, That aren't loved by God? Let me tell you, you're wrong. They may not realize they're loved by God. His his love is wide enough. His love is long enough to encompass all time. All time and into eternity from either ends of time. I mean, way back before time even started, way back before the universe was even put together. God, his love was as consistent then as it is now. And way far into the future, beyond our time span, as we get into eternity, his love is going to continue and continue and continue. And that boggles my mind. But that's the God that we're asked to walk with. His love is deep enough, deep enough to leave the heavenly place wherever he is to come down here, to walk in our shoes, to to put on our skin, to know the murk and mire of this world. His love is so deep that it allowed him to go to the cross on our behalf. His love is so deep that it allowed him to conquer death once and for all. And his love is so high to lift us, to lift our sin from this muck and mire and bring us up into his community, into his relationship with him. Boy, that's a big big challenge. And so we come to this third aspect of the definition. Now, I don't know. Okay, I'm going to say. Can we remember the other two? God is an awe-inspiring community of one. Very good. Who invites us into their love who invites us into their love. This is the God that that we've embraced. This is the God I gave my life to when I was seven years old, who invites us into their love. Finally, we come to that last phrase. In order that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Again, a mind-boggling concept, but we're to be filled up to the brim. That means it's possible. We can be filled up to the brim with the fullness of who God is. And when I say that, don't lessen it. I mean, think of the character of God inside you. Think of all the attributes of God inside you. Think of all the presence of God inside you. His holiness, His relatability, it's inside you that we could be filled with the fullness of God. I, again, it's, it's hard to imagine this. And Paul told us that. You're going to have a hard time imagining this. Okay, I agree. I guess I go back to Adam and Eve in that garden. And um, there's there's a Hebrew word that means peace, but it's called shalom, shalom. And we oftentimes think that peace is the absence of war, the absence of problems, but the concept of shalom is much greater. It's, it's wholeness, it's completeness, it's having purpose, it's, it's having vision, it's having fullness. And when I go back to that garden and I see the shalom that Adam and Eve were invited into to be able to walk and talk with this God who's way beyond my imagination, it makes me kind of wonder, what did they see? You know, I've often kind of pictured that when God came to walk with Adam and Eve, when Lord God came to walk with Adam and Eve, it was kind of an old guy. He might have even had a cane. Come walking along with them, and they're talking. I wonder if it was three of them. I wonder if it was a community. Here comes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Say, hey, you guys, let's walk. Let's walk. We want to struggle. But, I think it was something that would just expand. Expand beyond our imagination. So it brings me to that last aspect of our definition. God is an awe-inspiring community of one who invites us into their love so we may live life in God's fullness. Now since I haven't been incinerated, I think we're on the right track. Um, And and let me just stop. That's That's a Big, big God. Huge concept. And God invites us into that. Now I go back 60 years ago to that little blonde-headed kid who's walking forward to accept Jesus in his heart. And I want you all to know, in, an, in a moment of just um, pure transparency, he did not know a God like this. Basically, I was going forward because, man, I was scared of hell. And I wanted my get out of hell free card. Um, That's what kept me going down that aisle. Boy, for 60 years, God's been working with me to show me that how I look at him affects how I look at you, how I look at me, how I look at our community, how I look at our world um, I want to read something to you. It's from a book called "Apprenticeship with Jesus" by Gary Moon, and uh, my good friend Carolyn Schmidt passed this on to me. Um, great book, and I know she's given it to some of the rest of you too. But he starts out with with two stories that I that I've got to go to to share because it's kind of my experience. And I'll just read what he says. I'm going to plagiarize Gary Moon. <clears throat> Let me tell you the two stories that have had the biggest impact on my life, and perhaps on the entire Christian church. Each presents a very different vision of what is, from the human perspective, the most important concept in Christianity. The first story. In the first story, God creates two naked people without belly buttons and places them in a garden. It's not really clear why he does this, but there's good news. Their primary job is to be fruitful and multiply. One day, while taking a break from multiplying and naming the animals, the woman, influenced by a talking snake, tricks the man into taking a bite from an apple and all hell breaks loose. God is surprised and then becomes increasingly angry. He curses them, every dog, cat, rock, leaf, and the entire universe and each of the seven billion plus and counting descendants who will follow. Through many millennia, God stews in his wrath. He does write down a few instructions, occasionally sends a plague or a prophet or a flood to keep the folks in line, but mostly he just sits around on a throne looking a lot like Charlton Heston, scowls through the glass bottom floor of heaven as he thinks up new ways to make humans behave. Then finally, when he can take it no more, he sends his own son to be tortured and brutally murdered. While there are a lot of theories about why God's son had to die, the bottom line is, it somehow caused God to feel a whole lot better about things and helped him decide that anyone who hears about what Jesus did and says a magic phrase will once again get to live forever and enjoy paradise. And for those who don't say this incantation, well, they're going to burn in flames for all eternity. Don't say the right words and your fate will be more grotesque horror than could be conjured up by a committee of Nero, Hitler, or Genghis Khan. I never liked that story. Story number two, story number two. In the second story, God exists as a loving community of three whose relationship is so joyful, so pulsating and vibrant that it's best been described as a dance. And God decides that this is all too wonderful to keep to himself, so he creates an entire universe and tenderly places humanity at the center, like the offspring of proud parents brought home to a nursery and God does something even more amazing. He plants within the human heart a small but glorious piece of himself. And under his watchful eye, these two creatures are to grow into beings who will become as much like God as possible. They are to join the dance, become partners with the Trinity. But the very first two make a fatal decision. They decide that they can live unplugged from the tree of life or from the presence and energy of God and can, in fact, be God themselves and God's not surprised he saw this day coming even as he was knitting them together you can't surprise someone who lives outside the boundaries of time and he's not angry he does however become very sad as separation and the reality of free will play out before his eyes he sets in motion a series of plans to woo us back home refusing to give up on his original plan to be a nurturing parent to his precious children Showing them how to grow their character until it mirrors his own. Through the passing millennia, God becomes the prodigal father, standing by his driveway, straining his neck, waiting for his children to come home. He sends cards and letters, patriarchs and prophets with the same message Your inheritance is waiting. The promises can still be cashed. Come home. I want to be with you, I want to teach you to dance. But when it becomes clear that we will not come home for longer than a brief visit, God can wait no longer. He empties himself of divine dignity and wades into the murk and sits down in the mire alongside his prodigal children, becoming as much like us as possible for a while so that we can learn to be like him forever. Jesus brings the good news that the doors to the kingdom are open wide and that the Trinity still wants us to join the dance, to become as one with them as they are with each other. And he inhales death and separation into himself and he shows through the gruesome image of crucifixion what it's like to, look, to, to freely die to all that is separate from the will of God. And then he demonstrates through his resurrection that he knows what he's talking about. Mm, but that's not all. He sends His Holy Spirit with music and a dance chart, so that we can learn how to waltz with the Trinity even now, as we wait for the real party to begin. I like that story. Now I have to admit, as a seven-year-old, I kind of been taught that first story, and I have to admit. Throughout those 67 years of my life, oftentimes I default back to that first story. But I so much want to live in the second story. Because when I go back to that first story, this is what happens to me. I become uncomfortable to be with God. I mean, let's face it, God is scary. God is angry. I don't want to do something to, to rile him up. So there's, there's not really that impetus that wants to be with God when I'm starting from that first story. Um, I become more and more behavior-oriented, and by that I mean I'm trying to come up with what are the right things I need to do so I can make sure that God will be pleased with me. Um, how do I control God? Maybe another way to look at that is my religion becomes wrath management. I'm looking for the little loopholes. Uh, spiritual discipline has become dry and obligatory. Dry and obligatory. Um, having a quiet time in the morning is something I have to do. It's not something I want necessarily. Oh, and the worst is the last one. Obedience is motivated by shame and guilt. And I'd add Fear. But when I find myself walking in that second story, my outlook totally changes. Instead of finding myself uncomfortable to be with God, I I grow in my desire to be with them. I I realize they love me. I don't have to be afraid of them. They love me. In fact, they loved me when I was born born. They loved me when I was doing all these stupid things before I became a follower of theirs. They love me even when I do stupid things as a follower of theirs. They love me. I want to be with them. Um, instead of being so concerned with what I do, I start to realize there's nothing I can do to make God love me more or to make him love me less. His love is the same and it's been eternity's past and eternity's future. Spiritual disciplines that seem dry and obligatory become tools to help me deepen my walk with God. Boy, the opportunity to have a quiet time in the morning, just me and God, wow. And and to picture the three of them opening up this word or opening up my mind or opening up my eyes to see the beauty of what they've made around me. What a privilege. To be able to talk to them in prayer, to be able to read their word, to be able to walk in nature and let them open my heart, it becomes tools to deepen my walk with them. And finally, the best of all for me, obedience becomes motivated by love, by God's all-encompassing love. I I don't have to worry about making a mistake because God is there as a parent to, to help me, to get me back up on my feet, to walk with me. Mm, That's the story I want to embrace and live in. And you know, I envision for us that story. Because I I can't help but wonder what it would be like as we think about this God who's so awe-inspiring. And, and, and it's, it's so beyond our imagination of being three in one, but invites us into their amazing love of a community together and then empowers us to be able to walk in their shalom into this world around us and to be used to spread that fullness that he wants to see everybody have. What a great thing that would be. Can you imagine what South would be like to be a church known for that? to walk into this community with that God and that second story. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, my dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm amazed. I I can't even think fully or imagine all of who you are, but how wonderful that you invite me to be in you. Oh God, I know you invite each and every one of us to be in you. Ah, thank you. Father, lead us in worshiping you.